you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. A warning, this episode includes discussions of violence and child death and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On April 28, 1908, after being called to investigate a fire that had destroyed a Laporte, Indiana farmhouse, police made a gruesome discovery. The home belonged to Belle Gunnis, a woman who had lived in Laporte since 1901. Workers sifting through the debris discovered four bodies in the basement later in the day. At first, the bodies were believed to be Belle and her children, Myrtle, age 11, Lucy, age 9, and Philip, age 5. But the family's piano from the first floor was found on top of the bodies, which conflicted with the theory that the victims were sleeping in their beds on the second floor when the fire started. Those at the scene quickly determined that the four victims had been murdered and their bodies placed in the basement before the fire. The Laporte County Sheriff launched an investigation of the fire and its surrounding events. Around the same time, a man named Asley Helyaline arrived and insisted that Bell had murdered his brother Andrew earlier that year. When authorities searched the property, they unearthed the butchered remains of at least 11 people buried near the hog pen on the farm. Belle Gunnis, also known as Lady Bluebeard, the Laporte Black Widow, the mistress of Murder Farm, and Hell's Bell, was probably one of America's most prolific serial killers. She might have killed between 25 and 40 people, including women and children, at the turn of the 20th century. For the next 100 years, rumors circulated that Lady Bluebeard didn't actually die in the fire and most likely faked her death. Did Belle really die in the fire? Did she murder all those people? And did she set the fire to cover her escape from Laporte? Stay with me as we explore the mysterious case of the mistress of Murder Farm. I'm Jaden McKell, and you're listening to Straight Up Enigmas. listeners, thanks for joining us. If you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps out our show. Connect with us on social media where we post each episode as it airs. We're proud to be a member of the Straight Up Strange Network. I'll include a link to the network's Facebook page in the show notes. If you'd like to support our podcast, 
please check us out at patreon.com slash straight up enigmas to receive bonus content, shout outs on social media, personalized messages from me, and early access to our regularly scheduled episodes. Without further ado, let's begin. Belle Gunness was born Brynhild Paul's daughter Storset on November 22, 1859, in the small village of Selbu, Norway. She was the daughter of a stonemason, and her family was large and extremely poor. At an early age, Brynhild hired out to surrounding farmers to work as a cattle girl or dairymaid, but not much else is known about her early life. Sometime after 1881, she immigrated to the United States to live with her sister Nellie Larson in Chicago and changed her name to Belle. Belle was soon employed as a house servant. The work was hard, the hours long, and the pay terrible. Most immigrants worked hard and tried to give their children what they could, but not Belle. She saw the lifestyle of her employers and wanted it. Her sister said later, Belle was crazy for money. It was her great weakness. In 1884, Belle married a man named Mads Sorensen, a department store detective. He later got a job working for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad for around $12 to $15 per week, barely enough to give Belle the lifestyle she dreamed of. In 1896, Belle and Mads opened a confectioner shop or candy store in downtown Chicago. It failed financially, and within a year, the business mysteriously burned down. Bell told the insurance investigators that a kerosene lamp had exploded and set the fire. Despite the fact that no lamp was ever found in the ruins, the insurance money was paid. It was probably with this money that the Sorensons bought their first home in the suburb of Austin, Texas. This home was destroyed by fire in 1898. Again, insurance was collected and another home purchased. Bell and Mads had four children, Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Both Caroline and Axel died in infancy of acute colitis. The symptoms of acute colitis include nausea, fever, diarrhea, lower abdomen pain, and cramping. These are also symptoms of poisoning. Both were insured and the insurance paid off. Caroline died in 1896 and Axel in 1898 the same years as the aforementioned fires. It seems that Belle discovered a way of making the money she was so desperate for. After the 1908 fire, Belle's sister Nellie told reporters that Belle had lots of money and property, but she had no idea where her sister had gotten it all. 
Stranger still, Mads died on July 30th, 1900, coincidentally on the only day his two life insurance policies overlapped. The first doctor to examine Mads' body believed he suffered from strychnine poisoning. But the Sorensen's family doctor, who had been treating him for an enlarged heart, overruled the first doctor and determined that Mads died of heart failure. Belle told the doctor she gave him a powder to help him feel better. The insurance companies awarded her $8,500, the equivalent of around $250,000 today. With this money, she bought the 42-acre farm on the outskirts of LaPorte, Indiana, and moved in with her two young daughters and a young ward, Jenny Olson. Belle met a local butcher, Peter Gunnis, and they married in April 1902. One week after the marriage, Peter's infant daughter died while Belle was watching her. Eight months later, Peter also passed away when a sausage grinder and jar of hot water reportedly fell on him. In this case, the coroner believed Peter had been murdered. The body showed symptoms of strychnine poisoning, so he ordered an inquest. Because Belle played a convincing widow in mourning, and there was no hard evidence to convict her, she walked away a free woman and collected on Gunness's life insurance policy. But she was pregnant at the time of Peter's death, and in 1903 gave birth to a son, Philip Gunness. The Laporte Black Widow was quick to recover and put ads in the matrimonial columns of Norwegian-language newspapers of the Midwest. One read, Wanted, a woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition, wants a good and reliable man as partner in the same. Some little cash is required for which will be furnished first-class security. Another read, Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of gentlemen equally well provided with a view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. She describes her Laporte farm as picturesque, almost a utopia, yet in need of a man to share in the labor. Many men answered these ads and traveled to Laporte to meet Belle. In December of 1907, Andrew Helluline, a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, answered one of these ads and exchanged letters with Belle. One of her last letters to Andrew said, But, my dear, do not say anything about coming here. Now sell all that you can get cash for, and if you have much left, you can easily bring it with you, as we will soon sell it here and get a good price for everything. Leave neither money or stock up there, but make yourself practically free from Dakota. 
In January of 1908, Andrew received a passionate letter from Bell that closed with the ominous line, Come prepared to stay forever. Andrew promptly emptied his bank accounts and left South Dakota to meet Bell. That was the last his family ever saw or heard from him. Early in the morning on April 28, 1908, a fire destroyed the Gunness farmhouse. Under the rubble, town authorities found the headless body of a woman, believed to be Belle and three of her children, Lucy and Myrtle Sorensen and Philip Gunness. At first, investigators believed Belle was the innocent victim of foul play, until Asley Helyeline arrived in Laporte to look for his brother Andrew on May 2nd. Andrew had arrived in Laporte with plans to marry Belle. At her prompting, he had sold his property, liquidated his assets, and come to Laporte with around $3,000. When Asley did not hear from his brother for several months, he contacted Belle to find out about Andrew. She told him his brother had left Laporte for Norway. Asley didn't believe Belle's story and came to talk to her personally. He contacted the Laporte County Sheriff after his arrival and explained the situation and his suspicions that Andrew might have met with foul play. He asked the sheriff for permission to search the Gunness farm and possibly do some digging. So, the search of Bell's property began. Joe Maxson, Bell's hired hand at the time of the fire, pointed out a likely place for the men to start digging for bodies, underneath the hog pen. On May 5th, four feet below ground, Andrew Helyeline's body was uncovered. The digging continued until 12 bodies including three teens, an infant, and a woman, and several miscellaneous body parts were uncovered. The butchered body parts were found in gunny sacks buried near the hog pen. One of the bodies belonged to Belle's foster daughter, Jenny Olson, who was last seen in late 1906 at the age of 16. When friends had asked after her, Belle had told them she'd been sent to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles, California. Why did Belle kill Jenny? Maybe she had discovered Belle's activities and threatened to talk? Maybe Belle was jealous of her? Sadly, we'll probably never know. We'll be back right after this. As the world's premier streaming service for horror, thriller, and supernatural content, Shudder is spooky 24-7, 365. Just because Halloween has come and passed doesn't mean that the scares don't continue. Sign up for Shudder and get access to the largest collection of acclaimed horror movies and series streamed right to your favorite devices. Exclusive titles coming this season include the Creepshow Animated Special, 
a Shudder original series available now. Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist, available November 19th. Blood Vessel, available now. Scare Me, starring Aya Cash, Josh Rubin, and Chris Redd, available now. And The Mario Bava Collection, coming November 23rd. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month, or $56.99 a year. Shudder has been called the Netflix for horror, and I can see why. It has the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. There are new, spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone and Android devices, Apple TV, Roku, Xbox One, and more. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. I recently watched Shudder's original A Creep Show animated special and was so impressed with the gruesome graphics. Seriously, the animation was amazingly detailed and so realistic. And the stories were incredibly creepy. They were actually based on short stories by Stephen King and Joe Hill. And I loved that Kiefer Sutherland and Joey King were the main cast. Shudder has a vast selection of content, extensive international library, range of genres and types of movies, from old classics to modern favorites. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes titles like the acclaimed Tigers Are Not Afraid, One Cut of the Dead, Revenge and the Creepshow TV series, produced by Greg Nicotero, and based on the famous films by George Romero. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com and use promo code ENIGMAS, E-N-I-G-M-A-S. Once more, to try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com and use promo code ENIGMAS, E-N-I-G-M-A-S. Thank you to our sponsor, Podcorn, for helping us make this episode possible. For almost a year now, I've loved using the easy-to-navigate format of Podcorn's website to find brands that are willing to partner with our show. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. I've personally really loved creating mid-roll promos for the brands we've collaborated with. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, 
And Podcorn is there to support you at every step to ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when Podcorn monetizes. Click the link in our show notes to sign up with Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. What the police found at the Gunness Farm was a graveyard for murder victims, and newspapers began calling Bell a bluebeard in skirts. Railroads ran special excursions to the Gunness Farm, bringing morbidly curious sightseers with the hope of catching a glimpse of police pulling out body parts. As many as 15,000 onlookers arrived in a single day. Refreshment stands were set up along the road, serving Gunness stew. Bell's dentist, Dr. Norton, said that if Bell's head or dentures were found, he could positively identify her by examining her teeth. The sheriff decided to sift through the ruins again in an attempt to locate the head. Louis Klondike Schultz, a former miner, was hired to build a sluice and begin sifting the debris. On May 19th, a piece of bridgework was found, consisting of two human teeth with porcelain teeth and gold crown work in between. Dr. Norton identified them as work he did for Bell. Based on this evidence, the coroner's inquest ruled that the headless female body found in the house belonged to Belle. The day before the fire, Belle went into town to see her lawyer. Earlier in 1908, Belle had fired her handyman on the farm, Ray Lamphere. It was believed that he was deeply in love with Belle and was probably jealous of the many male visitors she received. Bell went to the courthouse and declared that Lamphere was not in his right mind and requested that authorities hold a sanity hearing. He was declared sane and sent on his way. He was arrested a few days later for trespassing on the Gunness property. Lamphere began making thinly veiled threats and wouldn't leave Bell alone. It appears to have gotten so bad that Belle told her lawyer the day before the fire that she was afraid of him. She asked her lawyer to draw up a will leaving everything she owned first to her children and then to an orphanage in Chicago. At the meeting, she was quoted as telling her lawyer, I'm afraid Ray's going to kill me and burn the house. Upon learning this information, the sheriff picked up Lamphere for questioning. Lamphere's first reaction was to deny any knowledge of the fire. Next, he wanted to know if Belle and the kids had gotten out. However, an eyewitness claimed to see Lamphere fleeing the scene of the fire, so Lamphere was charged with arson and four counts of murder. When authorities determined the fire was caused by arson, 
Gunnis' farmhand Ray Lamphere became the prime suspect. Ray was brought to trial in November of 1908. The main defense was that the body from the fire was not Bell's, despite the coroner's ruling. Lamphere's lawyer brought forward evidence contradicting the dentist's identification of the recovered teeth and bridgework. A local jeweler testified that while the gold in the bridgework had come through the fire almost completely unscathed, the gold plating on several pieces of gold jewelry and watches was melted away. In a bizarre experiment, two local doctors produced a human jawbone, attached a similar piece of bridgework to it, placed it in a blacksmith's forge, and burned it until the bone could easily be crushed. Remember, the head was never found, just the teeth and bridgework. The result of this experiment was that the teeth crumbled, the porcelain bridgework was pitted and checked, and the gold crowns were somewhat melted. The condition of the bridgework discovered in the fire debris was much better. The defense also produced Bell's hired hand, Joe Maxson, who testified that he had seen Klondike Schultz pull the bridgework out of his pocket shortly before its alleged discovery. This testimony was corroborated by another witness. On November 26, 1908, the jury found Ray Lamphere guilty on the charge of arson and sentenced him to 2 to 21 years at the state prison in Michigan City. He was acquitted of the murder charges. In January of 1910, Lamphere made a deathbed confession to a clergyman. He claimed that although he didn't kill anyone, he did help Bell dispose of the bodies. Lamphere said that when a man answered an ad and came to the farm to meet Bell, she would invite her prey to dinner. During dinner, she would either drug her date and hit him over the head with a meat cleaver or poison the food with strychnine. Bell would butcher and dismember the corpse, then either feed the remains to the hogs or bury the body parts near the hog pen. Neighbors recalled seeing several middle-aged male visitors come to visit but never leave. When questioned about this, Bell would reply that each man had to leave unexpectedly in the middle of the night. Lamphere also claimed that they traveled to Chicago a few days before the fire to find a body double for Bell. They brought back a housekeeper who Gunnis killed and decapitated. In the years that followed, some came to believe there were further victims left on Gunnis's farm. The number of men who had visited Bell and subsequently been reported missing outnumbered the bodies recovered, and it said the authorities never searched the property thoroughly in 1908. Many people believed that investigators mishandled and misinterpreted the evidence in the early 20th century, letting the mistress of Murder Farm escape. 
Like many of the killers in iconic slasher films, Gunnis was reportedly seen for years after the fire. The last sighting was in 1931, when a woman named Esther Carlson, who had an uncanny physical resemblance to Belle, died in Los Angeles while awaiting trial on charges that she poisoned a man for his money. Not only did Carlson resemble Gunnis, she was about the same age Belle would have been in 1931. Esther also killed with Belle's M.O., and there was no record of her before 1908. To find out if Belle and Esther were the same woman, a team of University of Indianapolis graduate students exhumed Belle's coffin in November of 2007. They hoped to use DNA analysis to identify the remains, but samples from the still-sealed flap of an envelope that Belle had sent to one of her suitors was too degraded to be useful. A woman from Norway, a direct descendant of Belle's grandmother, offered her DNA to compare to the bones in Belle's grave, but there wasn't enough money to get the samples examined. The team was also surprised to find the skeletal remains of two children in Belle's coffin. The team of graduate students returned in 2008 to exhume the bodies of Gunnis's three children, hoping to see if they were missing the bones that were found in the coffin. If not, it could mean Belle killed more children than initially believed. Unfortunately, at the time of this recording, the osteological exam of the children found in Belle's coffin in 2008 is unavailable. Whenever and wherever she was when she died, Belle Gunnis seems to have taken her secrets to the grave. What do you think? Did Belle really die in the fire at her farmhouse? Did she kill all those people? And did she set the fire to cover her escape from Laporte? Find us on Instagram at Straight Up Enigmas or Twitter at Straight Enigmas and let us know. You can also contact us through email at straightupenigmas at gmail.com or through our website, straightupenigmas.home.blog. If you like the show, please remember to hop onto Apple Podcasts to give us a five-star rating. It really helps the show. This episode was written and produced by me, Jaden McKell. It was edited by Austin Blackwell. The theme song, Straight Up Enigmas, was created by Chuck Flyer. I leaned on a lot of great sources for the research and narration of this episode, so be sure to take a look at the links in our show notes. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you soon on December 8th, for the next episode of Straight Up Enigmas. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.